Elements and aspects of the Christmas story that teach us how God often works in ways that we would never expect Him to work. So next week we are going um, to look at how God most often chooses unexpected people to accomplish His plans and His purposes. That when God wants to work in the world, He often chooses people that we wouldn't expect. Whereas we would expect you know, the high and the mighty and the powerful and the rich, God often uses the weak and the lowly. So we'll look at that next week. And then in two weeks, we'll see how God works in unexpected ways. That when God was choosing to send His Son into the world, He sent Him as a baby through this miraculous virgin birth. But this morning we're going to look at how God works in unexpected places. This idea of how God often does very significant things in otherwise seemingly insignificant places. So from about the first grade to eighth grade, my family lived in Titusville, Florida. Um, Titusville is seemingly a pretty insignificant town. Like, does anybody know about Titusville? Okay, but yeah, like not really any of you. Yeah, it's not significant. It's about an hour east of Orlando. It's on the coast. Um, about 50,000 people live there, so it's not a big city by any means. So just looking at it, there's nothing special about Titusville. But what's interesting, what's crazy, is that for decades, literally world history would happen in Titusville. Because Titusville is home to the Kennedy Space Center, where you know Apollo 11, all the Apollo missions launched from, and then for decades, it was where all of the space shuttles would launch from. All of that was happening right outside of Titusville. And so growing up there, like as a kid, I didn't realize just how crazy and significant that was. As a kid, it was just another thing you were used to. We'd be you know, playing basketball or playing soccer out in the neighborhood, and you hear a big boom. You're like, oh, look, yeah, there goes the space shuttle again. Cool, we've seen that a hundred times. But now as an adult, I realize, man, like, that was such an awesome thing growing up, being able to see the literal space shuttle go up from my front yard. Like, that was historic. That was significant. That's an awesome thing. But, but thinking about it, now it's, it's crazy, it's kind of this weird dynamic that such big things, such historic significant things happened in an otherwise seemingly insignificant little town called Titusville. Now this morning we're going to look at this another, another town from the Bible where on the surface this other town, it's a seemingly small insignificant town, it's not you know, a big town, it's not a historic town, but something historic happens in this town little town. So we're going to start in Micah chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to start several hundred years before the birth of Jesus. And several hundred years before the birth of Jesus, what happens is the nation of Israel is split into two. There's the uh, northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But what both kingdoms have in common is that they have both become pretty corrupt. The people of both kingdoms, they're worshiping idols instead of worshiping God. They are filled with violence. Um, they are filled with people and systems who are getting wealthy by oppressing the poor and the marginalized and the downtrodden. And so because of all of this corruption, um, God speaks to the people through this prophet Micah. And Micah the prophet, speaking on God's behalf, says, hey, judgment is coming because of your sin. Because of your idolatry, because of your violence, because of how you neglect and oppress the poor, God's judgment is coming upon you. But in the middle of this pronouncement of judgment, there's this glimmer of hope. And in the middle of this pronouncement of judgment, Micah the prophet on behalf of God says, hey, if you will turn away from that and turn back to God and trust back in God, then there can be peace and there can be mercy 
Because God is going to send this Savior who will save you from your sin, the Savior of the world. And ultimately, this prophecy we're about to read, this prophecy is about Jesus, who is not just the Savior of Israel, but the Savior of the whole world. So Micah, starting in verse 2, this is what Micah the prophet says in the middle of this judgment. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. He says, you, O Bethlehem, you are a small village among all the people of Israel. Yet, a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come to you on my behalf. So Micah the prophet, he tells the people of God, he says, hey, this ruler or this king is going to come to you and he's going to come from Bethlehem. Now, in this time in history, in this part of the world, what was significant about Bethlehem? The answer is nothing. There was absolutely nothing significant about Bethlehem. It was a small town. It was insignificant. Again, right there, even the prophet, he says, you are only a small village among all the people of Israel. Basically, he says, you're, you're a nothing town. You're not on the map. Nobody considers you Bethlehem. I mean, all Bethlehem was in this point in history was the answer to a trivia question. Because hundreds of years before this, David, who went on to be the greatest king in the history of Israel, David was actually from Bethlehem. But that fact did not turn Bethlehem into this, you know, prosperous, big, powerful place. It was more like, oh, hey, by the way, did you know that David was born in Bethlehem? And it was kind of like, oh, such a great king came from such a small podunk town. Look at that, such humble, quiet origins. That's crazy. That's the kind of place Bethlehem is. But Micah the prophet here, he says, oh, Bethlehem, a ruler will come from you. A king will come from you. Now, notice here, before we jump to the New Testament, what kind of ruler, what kind of king does a prophet say will come? He says, a ruler whose origins are in the distant past. A ruler whose origins are in the distant past. Now, Micah here, he's obviously communicating in Hebrew. That's the original language. And so the Hebrew word here is really important. When it translates into English, distant past, it's the Hebrew word olam, which means eternal or everlasting. And here's why that is so significant and so important. What, what Micah is saying is, hey, this ruler, this king who's going to show up in Bethlehem, he's saying, understand, when he shows up, that's not his beginning. He's saying his origins are not in Bethlehem. He'll appear in Bethlehem, but that's not his origins because he's actually eternal. He's everlasting. He has always existed. The prophet is saying there's this eternal king, this eternal ruler who will show up in Bethlehem. Now, let's think about this. Who or what is eternal, is everlasting? It's only God. God is the only eternal being. God is the only uncaused cause. God is the only thing in all of the universe that has always existed and who always will exist. So what Micah is saying here is that this ruler who will one day come and show up in Bethlehem, Micah is saying this ruler will be God himself. Right? That's, that's the statement. That's a bold statement that the prophet is making that one day in Bethlehem, God himself will appear in human history. Now let's jump over to the New Testament to Luke chapter 2. And in Luke, we will see how this prophecy is fulfilled about 700 years later. This is what Luke writes. He says, at that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. 
This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph, because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him um, Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. So this now in the book of Luke, this is taking place somewhere around 5 BC. There's this young couple, Mary and Joseph. Mary is pregnant with Jesus. We're going to talk more about their story next week. But Mary and Joseph, they don't live in Bethlehem where the prophet said this ruler, this king was going to come from. They live in Nazareth, which is about 70 miles from Bethlehem. But what's happening is Augustus or Octavian, who was the first emperor of the Roman Empire, he issues this worldwide edict, this worldwide decree that everyone in the world had to go back to their ancestral homes. They had to go back to where their families were originally from and register in this census. The reason Augustus wanted to do this, obviously, is because he wanted to know who all lived within the Roman Empire so he could make sure he was taxing everybody who lived within the Roman Empire. So everyone has to return to the hometown of their families to register for the census. And it tells us that Joseph is actually a distant descendant of King David. So Joseph's hometown, his ancestral town, is none other than Bethlehem, where the prophets said this king was going to show up. So Mary and Joseph, they make this 70-mile journey while Mary is very pregnant to Bethlehem. Remember, like, this is 2,000 years ago. Like, you're walking in on a donkey. Like, ladies, can you imagine? You're like eight, nine months pregnant, traveling 70 miles. Like, that has got to be miserable. They make this pilgrimage to Bethlehem, and while they're there, it tells us that Mary gives birth to Jesus, the Son of God. She gives birth to God incarnate, God with flesh and bone on. God is born in this little insignificant town of Bethlehem. Now, as we, we look at this and we think, okay, that's cool, but what in the world does that have to do with my life now and today here in Houston, Texas? I think there's two really important things that this reminds us of. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down, but here's the first thing. This reminds us that we need to expect to find God in the mundane places of our lives. Right? You should not be surprised by it, but you should expect to find God in the mundane places of your life. Expect to find God in the mundane places. Here's the thing about Bethlehem. Bethlehem, and this say it's not good or bad. Bethlehem doesn't have a good reputation. It doesn't have a bad reputation. It just simply has no reputation. So you know what Bethlehem is. Bethlehem is boring. Bethlehem is a boring place. It is a mundane place, but here's the crazy part. When the God of the universe, the eternal creator God of the universe, when he decides to enter into our story, to enter into human history, he doesn't show up in Rome, which was the center of political power in the world. He doesn't show up in Athens, which was the center of philosophy and thought and ideas. 
He doesn't even show up in Jerusalem, which was the center of religious worship for the Jewish people. When God decides he is going to split space and time in two, and he is going to enter into human history, and he's going to put on skin and bone and become man. When he does that, he enters into the boring, little, insignificant, mundane town of Bethlehem. And this reminds us that we should look for God. We should even expect to find God in the boring and in the mundane places of our lives. Now, what does that mean practically? I think for so many of us, when we think about, okay, well, what's the boring places in my life? What's the mundane places in my life? I think for a lot of us, depending on your age and stage of life, the boring and the mundane places are either school or work. Right When we're in school, whether it's middle school, high school, college, whatever, it just goes on and on and on and on, and it feels like it will never end, and it's the same thing over and over and over again. I remember a couple months ago, my son asked right, he's only in third grade. He's like, Dad, how much longer do I have to go to school? It's like, buddy, buckle up. Like, you should not even be asking that question yet. Like, this is not going to go well for you if you start asking that right now. Like it's just mundane and tedious and the same thing over and over and over again. But then we get done with school and so for so many of us, work becomes the same thing, doesn't it? Right? I would say the majority of people in our culture, we don't wake up early and go to work because we want to. We do it because we have to pay the bills. Right? I'd be willing to bet the majority of you, you know, if you won 500 mil and Powerball tonight, you're not going into work tomorrow, are you? You don't do it because it's exciting and you love it and you receive joy from it. You know, for, for most of us, it's like Groundhog Day, the same thing over and over and over again. And to quote the great theologian Stanley Hudson from The Office, it's a run-the-clock-out operation. Right? How many of you relate to that? You go to work, you're like, all right, I've got to run the clock out. I've got to get through this, and then I can go home and have a little reprieve, but then I've got to do it all over again the next day. For so many of us, man, we go to school every day, we go to work every day, and it's mundane, and it's boring. But, but here's the thing. What if we even entered into the mundane, we even entered into the boring, but, but we changed our mindset where we expected to find God there? We expected God to move even in the mundane and the boring. We expected God to show up each day. And, and here's the deal. Theologically, here's the reality. When you go to school tomorrow, you go to work tomorrow, if you're a follower of Christ, God is already there. He's already going to be there at your school. He's already going to be there at your workplace. And the reason he's already going to be there is because you are there. Right? You see, the book of Acts, it tells us that the Spirit of God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Right? That means that God's presence is not contained to a church building like this one. It's not contained to a temple or some fancy structure. No. What the New Testament tells us is that the place that the presence of God now dwells on this earth is in the life and the heart of every single follower of Christ. And so what that means is that if you are in Christ, when you walk into school or work tomorrow, you are bringing the presence of God with you into that place. It's just a matter of you making the choice to cognitively recognize that, to consider that, to, to think about that, to stop and to slow down and say, okay, God, I know you are here with me today. So God, even in the boring, even in the mundane, even in the monotony, God, Help me to experience your presence. Help me to encounter your presence here today. Here's a couple practical ways you can do that. 
Like what if you go to school or you go to work tomorrow and you are consciously trying to find people that you can tangibly show the love of God to? Right, so like what if tomorrow morning when you wake up before you go to school, before you go to work, you stopped and you prayed and you said, hey God, today, will you bring people into my path at work or at school who are hurting? Will you bring people into my path who need encouragement? People who I can encourage with your love and your grace or a kind word or, or I can pray for them, whatever it is, God, will you bring people into my path today that I can encourage? And then at work or at school, instead of just keeping your head down and trying to run the clock out, you, you do that with your head up and your eyes open and you are waiting and looking for people that God will answer that prayer through. Or tomorrow before school or work, you say, hey God, today, will you bring people into my path who are, who are in need of you? who are open to a relationship with you, people who I can explain the gospel to, people who I can tell that you sent your son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to rise from death so that they could be brought into relationship with you. God, today, will you bring somebody in my path that I can have a conversation with about that? And again, as you, instead of just going through with your head down, trying to run the clock out, you, you go through your day with your head up, with your eyes open, looking for the answer to that prayer. Here, here's the deal. When you pray each morning, hey, God, send me someone to encourage God, send me somebody that I can tell about your love and your grace. I mean, do we think that's a prayer that God would be anxious to answer for us? I think absolutely. I think that's the kind of prayer that God is eager and willing to answer. And when we do that, what, what can happen is we can see God begin to work in what are otherwise the boring in the mundane places of our lives. What we're seeing here, God entering into human history through little old insignificant Bethlehem. Man, it's reminding us that God shows up. God works in mundane places. But I think this story also shows us there's another place that we should expect to find God. You can write this in if you're taking notes. I think we should expect to find God in the messy places of your life. Expect to find God in the messy places of your life. So, so Luke, the historian here, he doesn't only record that, that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but look at specifically where he tells us he's born in Bethlehem. Read verse 7 with me again. It says, She, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. She laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now, most of, most of you, you know the story, right? But because of the census that was going on throughout all the world, you have all of these people traveling back to Bethlehem. Apparently, Joseph forgot to make a phone call or send the carrier pigeon to make his reservation because they get to Bethlehem and all the hotel rooms are booked. They had nowhere to go. And so Mary and Joseph, they end up staying in what is historically most likely a cave outside of a home. A kind of cave where the animals would come in for the night to be protected from the elements. So Jesus is born in this dark, damp cave. And when he is born, he is laid in a manger, which is an animal feeding trough because there's no other room for them. This is where Jesus, the Son of God, God with skin and bone on, is born. In a dark, damp, musty cave surrounded by barnyard animals. And again, this, this reminds us that God is not afraid to meet us in our mess. God is not afraid to meet us in the dark, messy places of our life. And I think 
for most of us, one of the kind of messiest places that we go through that we don't expect to encounter God, one of the darkest things that we go through that we don't expect to encounter God is we don't expect God to meet us in our pain. Right? When we're walking through the mess, when we're walking through the darkness of pain, I don't think most of us expect God to meet us there. And it's because when we walk through pain, when we walk through suffering, when we walk through trials, it feels like God is absent, doesn't it? Right? It's true. You, you could say that. You can admit that. It's okay. When we go through pain, it feels like God is absent. And our feelings are real. Our feelings matter. Our feelings communicate things to us. But what we have to remember is that our feelings are not always true. They're real, but they're not always true. And so we walk through pain, and it feels like God is absent. But the truth is that if we look for him, he is still there. The psalmist said that the Lord is close, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, that God is even willing to meet us in the darkest moments of pain and despair. There's this great quote a couple decades ago from C.S. Lewis, and this is what C.S. Lewis said. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, now let, me, let me explain what C.S. Lewis is not saying there. C.S. Lewis is not saying that God ordains our pain. C.S. Lewis is not saying that God inflicts pain or suffering upon us. The reason we experience suffering, the reason we experience pain, it's a result of sin, of the fall. It's because we live in a broken and fallen world, and Jesus has come to one day do away with all of that. So Lewis is not saying that God ordains or God inflicts our pain and suffering, but what he is saying is that God is so good and God is so powerful and God is so sovereign and God is so loving that even in our pain, he can walk with us through the darkness and he can use our pain to wake us up, to grab our attention, to bring us into new depths of our relationship with him. And God can meet us in the messy darkness of our pain. Now, here's the problem. Here's why oftentimes we don't experience God in the midst of our pain. It's because when we walk through pain, when we walk through suffering, our natural human response is to get out of the pain as quickly as possible. Right? That's my response. That's your response. We experience pain, and we want it to go away as fast as possible. So what... What most of us do, our natural tendency, we walk through pain, we walk through suffering, grief, whatever it is, and what we try to do is we try to mask it. Instead of leaning into it, we try to numb it. We try to numb it with, with Netflix or with sex or with working more hours or with alcohol or substances or whatever it is, like whatever the go-to is for us, we experience pain and we turn to something else to try to numb it, to try to ignore it, to try to make it go away. But instead of that, if in the pain, if we lean into it and we open our eyes and we say, okay, God, yes, I'm going through pain, but where are you in the pain? And if we do that, we will see that God is right there. He will meet us there and he will begin to heal us and restore us and bring us into new depths in our relationship with him. And when I think about my life, the two most painful things that I've ever had to walk through is one, um, Christy and I's first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. I was the first one. And then the second was a few years ago when my younger brother Josh passed away completely unexpectedly. By far the two most painful things I've ever had to walk through. 
And as I kind of process and look back on both of those experiences, what I believe is true is that I think I responded to both of those experiences in very different ways. Because with the miscarriage, I don't think I looked for God at all in that situation. In fact, I was mad at God. I was already a Christian by that point, but I was mad at God. I was angry that God would allow this to happen. I was, I was bitter towards God for a while. And, and honestly, it probably made the pain even worse. But then with my brother's passing, I don't know why, just the grace of God, for some reason I made this conscious choice to, to seek God, to look for the hope of God even in the midst of that situation. And here's the deal. It didn't make the grief necessarily any easier or any lighter. The weight of grief was still just as strong. It was still the hardest thing I've ever had to walk through. But through opening my eyes and saying, God, where are you? I learned that what the psalmist said all those years ago when he says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, I learned that that is actually tangibly true, that it's real. And in that time, I experienced God's peace and his presence, even in that dark, messy pain. And I think I can honestly say that it was during that season that I grew more in my personal relationship with God than I did in any other single season of my life. See, in the darkness and the pain in those messy places where it feels like God's absent, it feels like God is not there. No, He is there. We just need to stop and slow down and open our eyes instead of trying to get out of the pain as fast as we can. We lean into the pain and saying, God, how are you here with me in the pain? And the details of the Christmas story, Jesus, God in the flesh being born in this messy, dark stable. And him being born in this little, small, insignificant town of Bethlehem. And it is such a beautiful reminder for us that there is no place that the God of the universe cannot and will not meet us. He will meet us wherever we are. Now, shifting gears as we close, and then we're going to continue singing this morning. Now, I want us to close with just this question. As we, as we talk about Jesus, the Son of God, coming and entering into our story and, and showing up in Bethlehem, being born in this cave, surrounded by animals, being laid in a manger, I want us to ask the question, why did Jesus come even in the first place? Why was he even born in the first place? What did he come to accomplish? Because here's, here's what it tells us as we continue reading in this story in Luke. It tells us then Jesus didn't come as just another religious teacher. We got plenty of those. Jesus didn't come as a prophet. There were plenty of those in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't come as this moral example to show us the pattern of a new way to live. No, it tells us that Jesus came as a Savior. Jump down to verse 10 in Luke chapter 2. This angel appears to these shepherds and he announces that Jesus has been born. And look at what the angel says. The angel told them, don't be afraid for I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. And then the angel says this, talking about Jesus, he says, the Savior, he calls Jesus the Savior. He says, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem in the city of David. Again, Jesus didn't show up. He didn't come to be a religious teacher, to be a prophet, to be a moral example. He didn't come to be any of those things. He came to be a Savior because we needed a Savior. 
What do we need a Savior from? From our sin. The Bible tells us we have all sinned, and our sin separates us from God, and our sin leads to death, both physical death in this life and eternal death, separated from God forever. We needed saving from our sin and its consequences. And Jesus came to do that by living a perfect, sinless life, by going and laying down his life on the cross to pay for our sin. And on the third day of his death, rising from death so that we could be forgiven and receive eternal life with God forever in his kingdom. That's why Jesus came, to be your Savior and to be my Savior. And we're going to worship him. We're going to sing to that Savior. But listen, here's the deal. If you are here this morning and you have never called on Jesus as your Savior, we would encourage you, if God's drawn you to himself, do that. Call on Jesus. Trust that he came and he died for your sin and he rose from death so you could live forever with God. Call on Jesus to be saved. Listen, if you're here and you've never done that, but um, you're, you're considering that, or maybe you want to have a conversation, you have questions about that, man, we would love to talk with you. We'd love to connect with you and walk you through that, answer any questions that you may have about what it means to call on Jesus as your Savior. There's a couple ways um, that you can do that. First of all, on that card that Pastor Rick talked about earlier, on the back, um, there's a box that says, I would like to talk to somebody about following Jesus. Man, if you want to get coffee or grab lunch with um, somebody from here this week, we would love to do that. We would love to connect with you. And again, just answer any questions that you have. You can check that box, fill out the card, and just drop it in one of the um, offering boxes on your way out. Or even better, after the service, um, Pastor Rook will be up here at the front. Some of our deacons will be up here at the front. And at the end of the service, if you're like, hey, man, um, I want to know what it means to call on Jesus as my Savior. I need to do that. What does that mean? What does that look like for me? Man, they would love to talk to you. They would love to pray with you. They would love to walk through those questions with you. But if you are here today and you've never called on Jesus to be Savior, as we enter into the Christmas season, man, the reason we celebrate all this, the reason behind all this, the reason behind the nativity, the reason behind Jesus putting, or God putting on skin and own, coming to birth, coming to earth as Jesus was to save you. So if you've never called on Jesus as Savior, man, if God's drawn you, don't leave here without doing that. Again, we're going to sing, and then at the end of the service, there'll be people up here at the front who would love to walk through that with you if you'd like to talk to somebody.